ask you please uh, to pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, those who have gone before us have studied this very same word of God. Uh, We're not the first to come to it, we trust. We won't be the last. And so I pray that on this day that you would enable us to concentrate our attention, to focus our minds on that which is before us, this, the very word of God. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn please to Luke and chapter 1. Luke and chapter 1, please. I want to read beginning with verse uh, 26. Luke and chapter 1, please. Hear the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom, of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be? Since I am a virgin. And the angel answered her. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called called Holy. The Son of God. And behold your relative Elizabeth in her old age. Has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her. Who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, this particular passage is found, obviously, the opening chapter of the book of Luke. Luke's the gospel according to Luke as he lays out the truth concerning our Lord Jesus. But, but, but it comes at a time of, of two birth narratives Back to back, if you will. First, Elizabeth, um, Mary's relative, who had been barren, unable to have children, and her husband, Zachariah, who was a priest. And you might remember the situation there. The angel Gabriel, busy time for him. Uh, And by the way, we don't really know very much about angels. Some people read these passages and wonder about angels. We don't know very much about angels, so I'm not going to tell you anything about angels. Uh, We know that they exist We know they're invisible to us unless they make themselves or God makes them visible to us. We know they work for God, the holy angels, the angels that didn't fall with Satan. We know that. And and we know that they're frightening. Every time they show up, they have to say, fear not. So I don't know if it's their appearance or their appearing that is so frightening. But I suspect if you or I saw one, we would be frightened, and if we weren't, we probably hadn't seen an angel. Uh, I trust if they, whatever they look like, they don't look like 
what we think they look like and what they're pictured looking like. They're part of the Lord of hosts, the army of God, I suspect. They are a bit frightening to look at. But nonetheless, Gabriel, busy at this time, comes to Zechariah the priest, and, and he tells them that his wife, who is barren, is going to have a child, not just any child, but a special child. This special child is going to be the one who's going to make preparation for the Lord. Uh, as the Isaiah the prophet said, that one would come to make ready to prepare the way of the Lord, and he would come in the spirit of the prophet Elijah, the Malachi the prophet had spoken that Elijah would come. And, and now this word coming to Zechariah, when he hears that word, that this one in the spirit of Elijah will come, he, he, he would know how special this child would be. It would be John, of course, the one we call John the Baptist. And then this angel Gabriel comes to this woman some months later, Mary, who's a virgin. She, it's not that she's barren, she's a young woman. She hasn't been intimate with a man, thus she has no children. She's betrothed, we know, to this man Joseph. And we understand, of course, that betrothal in this day is much more than our understanding of engagement. It's a legal uh, uh, binding act, betrothing two people. They say we are going to be married. The only way to not be is in some sense divorced to break that betrothal. But, But they're not yet married they're not yet intimate, or not supposed to be, until married. And so that's this sense she's betrothed to this man, Joseph. Now, this angel Gabriel tells her about a child she's going to have as well. But this child is going to be vastly different, and the conception vastly different than between Elizabeth and Zechariah. You get the sense that Elizabeth and Zechariah are going to have a child in the normal kind of way. The miracle that's going to happen is this miracle that... that um, that, that God will bring to enable her through the normal course of intimacy to, to have a baby, to conceive a child. And, 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 and yet with Mary, quite a different thing. Plus, the, the, the children are going to be different. I mean, John's going to prepare the way of the Lord, which means that this one born to Mary is going to be the Lord. Very different, you see. Different children, different conceptions. Um, notice, of course, how it is that uh, this child will be named. Verse 32 it says, he'll be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. He'll reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom. There will be no end. So this child is going to be great. It's going to be the son of the most high. That is the son of God. And he will have David's throne. We talked last Sunday about the fact that they were anticipating one to come and sit on David's throne. You remember the prophecy given um, through uh, uh, the prophet Nathan. uh, And we find it in 2 Samuel chapter 7. This prophecy given that says to David that God will build him a house, a dynasty of kings. And these kings will come from David, will sit on his throne forever, and they will be God's sons. 
They will be God's sons. And we said that that could be fulfilled in a couple of different ways. One is that generation after generation, there'd be one who would come from the, from the, from the family of David who would sit on the throne literally. Uh, or it could mean that there would one from this family of David who would come and sit on the throne forever. Now, history, of course, tells us that it's the latter that was meant because there haven't been generation after generation those from the family of David to sit on that throne to rule over Israel. We know that that ended around 586 B.C., that since then there hasn't been one from the family of David to sit on that throne. But, but, but always in anticipation, this one to come, the prophet Isaiah spoke of a child who would be born and the government would be upon his shoulders and of his government and peace there would be no end. The prophet Jeremiah speaks of him, the prophet Ezekiel speaks of him, this one to come who would shepherd God's people, who would be the king sitting on David's throne, if you will, and that would be an everlasting kingdom. And so when Mary hears this, she realizes, oh, I get it. That's what this will mean, that from me will come this child, one who will sit on the throne of David uh, forever. And then she begins to wonder, how is this going to happen? Now, I find her question somewhat interesting. She says, how will this take place? Notice verse 34. How will this be since... I'm a virgin. What was she thinking? I would have been thinking. Hmm. I guess this means that I'm going to marry Joseph. And when I marry Joseph, we'll have a child. And this will be a special child. This will be the child that will sit on the throne of David forever. But yet, wasn't there a word about a virgin and a child being a sign. And so she asked the question, how will this be? I've never known a man. I'm a virgin. And then Gabriel doesn't say, well, you're going to marry Joseph and have a baby. He says this. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, well, your relative Elizabeth is having a child as well. Nothing is too difficult, too hard for the Lord. Nothing is impossible for him. And then we begin to realize the greeting of the angel Gabriel when he said, Oh, you favored one. <laughs> you have a woman who is receiving the grace of God. That's what it means to be highly favored. In fact, Paul the Apostle uses that expression of us in Ephesians chapter, two, chapter 1 when he talks of our salvation. And, and he says that you're, you're favored by God. You've received his grace, you see. And this doesn't mean that Mary was sinless. You know, there is that heretical doctrine called uh, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. It has nothing to do with football, by the way. Uh, nor does it have anything to do with the virgin birth or what is should be better called the virgin conception of Jesus. It's not that. The immaculate conception refers to Mary and says that in order for her to, to, uh, to bear this child Jesus, she herself would have had to have been sinless. And thus, when she was conceived, she was conceived without sin, without original sin in her. She was one who had no sin and that came then that she had no personal sin as well. So that when she was, when she got this message from the angel Gabriel, it meant that she was 
able to bear this child Jesus because she herself was sinless. No, no, no. There's nothing in the Bible that references that. And there's no even any theological necessity of that. She was simply a woman, highly favored by God. She wasn't a bestower of grace. She was one upon whom grace would come. And the grace, the special grace to her was that she would be the mother of our Lord. I would say, if I could just parenthetically, that I believe the Roman Catholics make too much of Mary. But sometimes we Protestants make too little of Mary. She still is a favored woman, very special, to bear our Lord Jesus. To be his mother. A special place, obviously, there for her. Not because of her merit, not because of her sinlessness, but simply by way of the grace, by way of the grace of God. And, and, and he says, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will overshadow you. His very powerful presence. I mean, there are myths, obviously, about the gods being intimate with human women and producing I don't even know what you would call the offspring in that case but 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 we, we know those mythical tales but but this isn't anything like that at all there isn't any intercourse there isn't any intimacy between God and Mary this is the power of God the overshadowing the cloud of God his very presence that he'll work in such a way that she will conceive in her he will conceive in her a child. And that she was a virgin is clear from the text. At least that's what the Luke is trying to convey to us. She herself is that I've never known a man. And, and we get this as well from the account that comes through the gospel of Matthew concerning Joseph. When he hears of this, you remember uh, Matthew chapter one, verse 18 it says now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. He knew that this child wasn't his. And he found out she was going to have a child. He, he said, well, we have to end this betrothal. He's a kind man, so he's going to do it quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear it a son, and you will call his name Jesus. He'll save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and called his name Jesus. So thus this conception uh, of this child by the Holy Spirit. And notice, he would be called holy, separate, unique, the one and only, the only begotten. There isn't anyone like him and he would be the son of God. And of course, throughout the scripture, Israel was called the son of God. Angels at times were called the sons of God. We are called sons of God, children of God. The kings were sons of God in one sense. This son of God, though, would be 
the Holy One, the one and only, none like him, unique, the only begotten, if you will. He would be the only one coming who would be conceived by the Holy Spirit, different than all the rest. I don't know, but, but often when people talk about Christmas and I hear during this Advent season about Christmas, on the one hand, sometimes we hear nothing about Jesus at all. And on the other hand, when we do hear something about Jesus, the expression Son of God is often in there somewhere. It's not that people believe it necessarily, but, but it's there when people think of Christmas, especially in our culture still. I think there is this, this, this shadow of, 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 of Christianity in the culture that says, Jesus, who is he? Well, he's the son of God. At least that's, you know, that's what all the Christmas carols say. That's what the Christmas hymns sing. And, uh, people sing about him. He's the son of God, you see. And the question is, what does, that, what does that really mean? And is it really true? As we read through the scripture, we find that when Jesus met various people and they referred to him as the son of God. He did not correct them. That is to say, he took it. He said, yes, of course. That's it. In fact, at his baptism, at what we call that great time of transfiguration, when, when, when Jesus was transfigured and Peter, James, and John saw him with Elijah and Moses, but they saw the, 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 the glorified, if you will, Jesus, uh, his father spoke, and, and he made the announcement, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus didn't say, no, 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 that's not exactly right. <laughs> he just, he, he took it. In fact, when he met Satan in that wilderness time of temptation, Satan came to him and said, if you are the son of God, then. And Jesus didn't say, we can end this now, I'm not the son of God. He knew he was the son of God. And he acted like the son of God because he didn't listen to Satan. He stuck by the word of his father. He was the son of God, you see. In fact, when demons would see Jesus, you know, it's fascinating to me that very often the very disciples of Jesus didn't know who he was. Demons always did. They understood that that was the time in history. That was the moment in time when the battle would take place. And they recognized who this one was. On one occasion, uh, you might remember, there was a couple of demon-possessed men. And the demons within them began to shout, What will you have to do with us, son of God? Have you come to torment us before our time? They got it. They understood. They knew who he was. He was the very son of God. He wasn't like the kings of David. Oh, yeah, in one sense, he would rule and reign. But, 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 but he was different. He was the holy, one and only, God in the flesh, Emmanuel, son of God. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? You remember, Peter responded, you're the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus said, oh, yes, you, you've spoken well. That's exactly, that's exactly right. When, when Mary, the sister of Lazarus, was with Jesus at the death of Lazarus and they were talking and Jesus had revealed to her that he's the resurrection and the life and that anyone who believes in him wouldn't die and even if they died, they would live. That was the essence of what Jesus said to Mary. He said, do you believe this? And she said, oh, yes. I believe that you're the Christ, 
You're the son of God who's coming into the world. And Jesus didn't say, no, 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 let me, no. He said, yes, that's exactly right. You understand this perfectly. Other occasions, Jesus flat out claimed to be the very son of God. He referred to God as his father. And when he referred to God as his father, everyone understood there was a difference there. Someone else could say, oh, God is my father, but I'm a child of God. But, but, but when Jesus said it, there was something about that that, that, that that moved people to realize, no, this is different than how anyone else would put it. This is a son-father relationship that's, that's really different. In fact, on one occasion, it was so clear what Jesus was saying. In fact, he even looked at the religious leaders and he said, Don't you understand that I and the father are one. That's why I call him my father in that sense. United. And you remember what the religious leaders did. They said, this is blasphemy. You being a man, you're making yourself to be God. And so they picked up stones to, 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 to kill him at that point in time. He escaped as he did until his time had come. But, but, but we realized what was really happening in that uh, situation. You remember the parables that Jesus told? Jesus told a great parable about the vineyard. And he set it up like this. He was talking to the religious leaders. And he said, well, there was a man who made a vineyard. Well, you know, if you said a vineyard, the word vineyard to a religious Jewish teacher, he knew exactly what you were talking about. Because Israel was the vineyard of God. So Jesus said, a vineyard. And you can just feel, see the, the, the wheels turning in their heads. And he said, he built it and he sort of rented it out to some others. And then he left. And then it came time to collect the rent. And so he sent a servant and they beat him up. Sent another servant and they beat him up. Sent another servant and they killed him. And so then what he did was he sent his son, the heir, and they killed him. Now that moment in time when he was telling that parable, who knew how they were stung? But when we read that, now we know exactly what Jesus was getting at. He was claiming to be that son, the very son of God, who would come, you see, and into the very vineyard of his father, the very, the very son of God. When Jesus was at his trial, Caiaphas, the high priest, frustrated, trying to get at what was really going on here. And so he finally looked at Jesus and he says, tell me, are you the Christ, the son of God? And Jesus, being Jesus, looked at him and said, you've said it. In essence, I don't need to say it. You've said it. That which you have said is really true. Jesus had the very characteristics of the son of God. One who would be thus. In fact, Matthew in chapter 11 and verse 27, we read this. Jesus says, all things have been handed over to me by my father. And no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the father except the son. And anyone to whom the son chooses to reveal him. He's saying, listen, I'm the son. I know the father and the father knows me. Now, it's one thing for a person to say, God knows me, because God knows everything. It's another thing for a person to say, I know God, in the sense in which Jesus says that I know him. I know everything about him. I know him intimately. In fact, I have the authority to reveal him 
to anyone. I choose. I'm the son of God. I have that kind of authority. Then in John in chapter 5. Notice this. Verse 19. Jesus said to them. Truly, truly, I say to you. The son can do nothing of his own accord. But only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. He's saying, there is this relationship. I am son. That's who I am. And so you see, I do submit to the father. Because I'm son. That's what son does. Then notice this. He says, for as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. This is what it means to be the son. Yes, I'm king. And as king, it means I give life. That's what I do. The father judges no one but has given all judgment to the son that he may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. So he says, I judge, I evaluate everything according to the standard of my father. I apply it. I understand his goodness and I too share that. And thus I judge. And if you honor me, you honor him. If you dishonor me, you dishonor him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Everything rests, you see, in how you understand, relate to, trust me. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. So the Father has life, I have life. He has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of evil. All those characteristics, the very characteristics you see of God himself. In fact, he's eternal. He's eternal. We we said this morning in the Nicene Creed, I can find it here, that he is the only begotten son of God, begotten of his father before all worlds, the only begotten son of God. In the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 2, it says that Jesus is eternally begotten of the father and we don't use that word begotten very often anymore so I'll let C.S. Lewis uh, speak to it he says one of the creeds says that Christ is the son of God begotten not created and it adds begotten by his father before all worlds will you please get it quite clear that this has nothing to do with the fact that when Christ was born on earth as a man That man was the son of a virgin. We're not now thinking of the virgin birth. And that's true. When the scripture says that he's the only begotten son of God. Right? The only one, the one and only, the holy son of God. 
in that sense that we talk about here. It doesn't mean the virgin birth. Oh, of course, that's when Jesus was born. But that's not the point. The point is the eternality of Jesus. He says, we're thinking about something that happened before nature was created at all, before time began, before all worlds. Christ is begotten, not created. What does it mean? Well, we don't use the words beginning or begotten much in modern English. But everyone still knows what they mean. They may have still known what they meant when C.S. Lewis wrote, I'm not sure we now know what they mean. So that, let me let you, let me let him tell you. To beget is to become the father of, to create is to make. And the difference is this. When you beget, you beget something of the same kind as yourself. A man begets human babies. A beaver begets little beavers, and a bird begets eggs, which turn into little birds. When you, but when you make, you make something of a different kind from yourself. A bird makes a nest, a beaver builds a dam, a man makes a wireless set, <laughs> nothing to do with the internet or he may make something more like himself than a wireless set say a statue if he is clever enough carver he may make a statue which is very like a man indeed but of course it's not a real man it only looks like one it can't breathe or think it's not alive now that is the first thing to get clear what God begets is God just as what man begets is man What God creates is not God. What man makes is not man. That is why men are not sons of God in the sense that Christ is. They may be like God in certain ways, but they are not things of the same kind. They're more like statutes or pictures of God. So you see, this one who was born was eternal. He existed prior to this birth. He's the eternal son of God. He was begotten, not made. He is God with us. The son of God. Thus, he has life in himself. Thus, he's the judge. Thus, he is the very giver of of life, All authority has been given to him. And, and these events in his life all attest to that. The virgin birth, yes, of course. His resurrection, yes, of course. His ascension into glory, yes. Yes, of course. So what does it all mean? What does it mean that he is the very son of God? And that the son of God has come. The short answer to that question is, what does it mean that Jesus is the son of God? What does it mean that the son of God has come? The short answer to that question is, it means Everything, right? It means everything. The longer answer goes a bit like this. And that is, as the one who is the son of God, he then is able to and comes to show us who God really is, to show us God. For instance, in John in chapter 1, when when John goes through this great uh, expression of the word becoming flesh and dwelling among us, He puts it like this in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. See, the Son of God comes and he says, let me reveal to you God. We know that God is because Jesus has come. And he says, 
You've seen me. You've seen the Father. I'm the very expression, if you will, of God. And because he's the Son of God, then everything that he says and everything that he does is trustworthy. It's reliable about God. Who are we going to trust to know what is true about God? We've all been in various discussions about God with people who think they know God. We think we know God. The question is, how do we know him? Who is he really? Who can really tell us that? Who can reveal that to us? So much so that it isn't just speculation. It isn't just our thoughts. And he says, well, I'm the son of God. I know God intimately. No one knows the Father as I do. I'm the Son. Let me tell you. And so he teaches. And not only that, he demonstrates by the acts that he does, his very compassion. He says, this is what God is like. This is what the kingdom of God is like. He says, you really want to know what God is like? Then uh, look at me. And you see that the expression, the key expression, if we could put it this way, the key expression of the glory of God, the revelation of God to us by Jesus is found where? We say in the Bible, but yes, but but, but where? What act? The cross. It was there that he said, Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. See? Show everybody who I am, the Son of God, so that in showing everybody who I am, the Son of God, they'll see who you really are. And what we see in the cross, you see, we see that God is just. That God is just. That when there is sin, there is guilt. And where there is guilt, there is the wrath of God. That sin arouses brings to bear the wrath of God. And the wrath of God isn't God's sort of uh, quick start temper. It isn't his, his, his impetuousness and his anger in that sense, but it's his steady, unrelenting, righteous, moral response to evil. And so when there's evil, when there's sin, There is the wrath of God. And Jesus says, I I came to show you that. How did I show you that? Well, I took the guilt of your sin upon myself. And when I took the guilt of your sin upon myself, this is what happens. This is how God responds. When there is the guilt of sin, God's righteous moral response to it is to bring death. That's true. You can rely upon that. I'm the truth. I'm telling you, this is what happens when there's sin and the guilt of sin. There's no escaping this. This is what happens. This is how God responds because God is just. But not only that, you see, God is love. I came to show you that. I came to reveal that, that God really is love, you see. Because you see, in his love, 
He poured out his wrath, not upon you, but upon me, if you believe. I came to be that substitute for you. This is the very love of God. You see, the love of God is expressed in in this expression, really, that God gave his son to die for us. John writes in his first epistle that this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And he gave his son as an atoning sacrifice, NIV, as a propitiation, better translations, for our sins. That is to say, that God gave his son. You see, if he'd sent a prophet, that would have been nice. If he would have sent an angel, hmm, that would have been nice. But it wouldn't have been love. Not like this. He sent his son, his only begotten son. What that means is he sent himself. This wasn't apart from himself. This isn't something he created and sent. This was himself, the eternally begotten son of God. What that means is that God is father, son, Holy Spirit. And, and it means this trinity is eternal and, and father eternally begets. That, that's, that's the saying. It's mind boggling. But that's the say that the son is always in and from the father. He's always in and from the father as his son. And that's the one he sent. This wasn't something, well, I'll create this and and that'll take care of that. He said, no, 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 I'll come. That's love. God sent his son to die. It's the wrath of God that was satisfied by the death of Christ for us the guilty sinners see it's just if a person pays for their own evil for their own sin it's grace when someone else does it's love and you can test love as we've always said by how much it costs, by how undeserving the object of love is, and how much joy you get from doing it. <laughs> the, the cost was incalculable. How can we calculate the cost of the death of the Son of God? It's immeasurable. We are completely not only undeserving, but ill-deserving. We deserve the opposite of what we get. And the joy was unspeakable. He did it for the joy that was set before him. You see, God doesn't love us because Christ made propitiation for our sins. What's mind-boggling is that Christ made Propitiation for our sin because God loves us. The love was first. 
the love generated the sacrifice. And so you see, since Christ has come, the very Son of God, what that means is we have perfect assurance. We can know that God really does love. And we really does, we really can know that God really does save. You know that wonderful expression, Romans chapter 8, verse 32. He who did not spare his son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In other words, if he's done this, why would we doubt him for anything? He's given his son, you see. So don't doubt, perfect assurance. He's the son of God who intercedes for us. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It's Christ Jesus who lives. It's Christ Jesus who intercedes for us. He's the one defending us. Why should we worry? When we pray, this ruler, this king who rules and reigns, from where does he rule and reign? He reigns from a throne of grace to give us mercy and help. In every time of need, why would we not pray? Why would we doubt? You see, perfect assurance. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples. And he said to them, this is the justice of God. And this is the love of God. This is my body that's been given to you. In the same way he took the cup and after giving thanks and this too he gave to his disciples and he said this cup the very wrath of God that I shall drink for you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And the apostle adds, as often as we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we declare the Lord's death until he comes. What do we declare? We declare that he's the very son of God. And we declare that we're going to respond in the same way that his father calls us to respond when he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Why? Because he's truth. And to listen to him means that we will Believe. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray for me, for us. And we would believe. That you would grant to us assurance that Jesus is the Son of God and as the Son of God is truth, is the way, is life. So Father, we pray that you would set this Juice this bread aside in such a way that we would know that we're in the very presence of the Son of God. Who loved us and gave himself for us. And we would rest assured that you do love. Indeed, that you do love each of us. 
and that we would believe. And this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I remind you, this table is not the table of grace, Evangelical Presbyterian Church. It's the table of the Lord. He invites to it all those who understand themselves to be sinners in the sight of God without hope, except in his sovereign mercy. And all those who receive and depend upon him as he's offered to us in the gospel as the savior of sinners. And your desire then is to live consistent with such a belief, such a profession of faith, such truth. That's true for you. I invite you to come. These two sections can come down this aisle to my left. These down the aisle to my right as you come. Take a piece of bread. Dip it in the cup. And as you do, say to yourself, I believe in the Son of God. Please come.